Hey, everyone, and welcome to the Millennial Health Podcast. I'm Dr. Sheree Allen, a board-certified family physician who's passionate about the health of my fellow millennials. I know we're booked and busy, but your first wealth is your health. So I'm taking some of my most important health messages and bringing them here to you on this podcast. Today, we have with us an internal medicine physician from the University of Pittsburgh to start us on a conversation about health disparities and COVID-19. So Dr. Adabi Essien is actually a friend of mine going all the way back to New Rochelle, New York, back in high school days, then through undergrad, then this medical journey. And we reunited recently at the 40 Under 40 Awards. Dr. Essien, welcome to Millennial Health. Thanks so much, Dr. J. Sheree Allen. It's been a pleasure. This is a pleasure, rather. I am actually really looking forward to this conversation. I think it's so important that we start to have these conversations and set the record straight on a lot of these issues. So I really appreciate you taking the time to be here with us. But do you mind telling our audience a little more about yourself, your background, and your current clinical role? For sure. I would love to. So as you mentioned, we are from the same hometown. Before I got to New Rochelle, my journey started in the greatest city in the world, Brooklyn, New York, uh, where I was born, um, to my wonderful two Nigerian parents um, who made it across the ocean to the U.S. back in 84 um, and have been here ever since. Uh, my father is a primary care doctor, and so he is really the inspiration for me to go into medicine. Um, my medical school journey started in the Bronx, so I always represent the Bronx as well. Um, and I trained in internal medicine and primary care in Boston at Mass General Hospital. Um, during residency, I decided that I wanted to do more than just clinical medicine and wanted to really impact populations at a broader level and decided to pursue a career in research. Um, and so after residency, I did a two-year general medicine fellowship at Harvard Medical School where I got my master's in public health and have since been um, doing research focusing on cardiovascular health disparities here at the University of Pittsburgh. Oh, whoa. that's amazing. I've also read that you have a strong interest in health disparities, too. And I've seen some of the other events that you've participated in. Could you tell us a little more about how you got interested in health disparities? Yeah, definitely. I think like many of us to kind of thinking about the communities we come from or we um, we take care of. So um, for me, it started back during medical school. And this is around third year of med school where we're going through rotations. Uh, I went to Albert Einstein in the Bronx, like I mentioned, and we rotate through several hospitals over that third year. And we would rotate through the private academic medical center and then some of the more local community hospitals. And you can really see the patients almost shift depending on where we um, were training and where we're doing our rotations. And that shift looked different depending on 
their clinical diseases they were coming in with, even just depending on the person that they had at the bedside, whether or not they had somebody with them in the hospital. Um, and I was really struck again by just the disproportionate amount of chronic diseases that were afflicting people who looked like me, an African-American man, whether it was diabetes, hypertension, obesity, um, a lot of clinical diseases. And you know, we learned about this in medical school, slide after slide would show that Black individuals were more likely to have this, more likely to have that. But there never was really an explanation as to what the causes were. Um, and so you end up in the hospital as a res as a third year med student kind of wondering, again, what are some of those causes? Um, and sadly for me, it wasn't until residency where I really started to see some of the social risk factors that were driving a lot of these disparities, um, seeing how much poverty and how much access to insurance or just healthcare in general um, how much housing and food insecurity and a lot of these social determinants, as we now call them, really influence people's health. And so that was what particularly drove me to thinking about health disparities and pursuing a research career in that field. It's so interesting you have that story. I think so many of us have similar stories like that that drove us to medicine. You know, I think of growing up in church and I remember, you know, us praying for women who were trying to get pregnant and struggling with infertility or praying for like God to heal the hypertension and the diabetes. Like I remember these prayers for people in the hospital. You know, mm -hmm. I remember even my Sunday school teacher who had end-stage renal disease and was on dialysis. Like I remember, you know, him going to like, this is so crazy, you know? And I think too, similar to you, one of the things that inspired me to go into medicine was because I thought that my community was lacking physicians. They were lacking doctors to address these problems. And it wasn't until medical school for me at Meharry where, you know, I saw, I mean, a phenomenal doctors taking mm. excellent care of the local population. That's when it clicked for me that the doctor wasn't, the missing doctor in the picture wasn't the problem here. There are a lot of other issues that impact your health outcomes. And sometimes it goes way beyond just having a person, you know, with an MD looking after you. So I love that you share that story. I think many of us have these stories that originally brought us to medicine. Oh, whoa. Well, speaking of which, you know, we're learning more now about how COVID-19 is disproportionately affecting Black Americans. You know, share a little more about that with us. Yeah, so this has really been quite an interesting journey over the last few weeks. So um, we were chatting earlier before the, the formal recording, but we first heard or I, I furnished my first my last rotation back on March 16th or so. So almost a little over a month ago now um, and just overwhelmed by the early news about COVID-19. You know, I, I didn't want to see the, the news reports. I was tired of hearing about conferences being canceled and the fact that I was going to miss my friends and um, the fact that my my vacation had to be canceled and I couldn't travel anymore. I was really just fed up with the, the social aspects and for some reason didn't appreciate just how serious this was going to be. Um, it wasn't until kind of had my 
head back afloat after being bogged down in my clinical um, work that I realized like, oh, wow, this is a serious problem. And once that realization hit, then further realization that this was going to be a serious problem in Black communities. Um, And the biggest reasons that I was thinking about that were related to the risk of developing the disease and people who both for risk of clinical diseases that we just mentioned, the higher rates of hypertension, diabetes, and other cardiovascular and pulmonary diseases that increase their risk of getting the infection, to, again, commenting on the social risk factors that put people at risk of um, not being able to social distance well enough or being considered an essential worker and not being able to actually take the time off of work Um, So I was really struck by how those were going to compound to really influence and impact minority communities in particular. Um, Then thinking about access. And I think the like anecdotally, the first um, stories we were starting to hear were people being turned, quote unquote, turned away from testing. Right. There were uh, minority individuals who were saying, oh, well, I can't get a test for some reason. I came in with a cough, a fever, et cetera. My doctor wasn't testing me. Um, And some of that at holding true in terms of some early reports of data that we're seeing. And that was a really big concern to me. A, are people going to feel like they're biased and being biased against testing? But B, are they even going to have the access to a test? Are they going to have a primary care doctor who they can call about their symptoms like literally every one of us are suggesting our patients do? Um, And then once our patients hit the the hospitals, that was my even biggest concern. Was the treatment going to be as um, equitable and and, um, high quality as we hope that the treatment should be, even though we know that decades of research have shown us, unfortunately, Black and brown individuals do poorer than our white counterparts. And that's whether it's related to chronic diseases, like we've mentioned, or even acute disease. If you put a Black individual in the ICU, they're less likely to get acute ICU-level critical care compared to non-Black individuals. And that's really striking to me. And so that's really what's um, scared me the most about this infection. And unfortunately, as time has played out, we've really seen that the numbers have shown that whether we're looking in Louisiana or Michigan or New York City, where we're from, we see that unfortunately Black and Hispanic Americans are um, dying and being infected at a disproportionately higher rate. And this is really a critical problem to think about. So what can we do, right? What can we do about this? As health professionals, you know, who are members of minority communities, we have families, our parents, our cousins, brothers, sisters, and friends, right? So what's in our power to that we could do about this? Yeah, I think that's an important question. You know, the first thing is the voice. I think we need to continue, like we are having this discussion right now to continue to put our voices out there. And um, I've been on social media kind of curating or collating the um, both essays that our colleagues are writing, op-ed pieces rather in their local newspapers. And that's what we need to do. We need to be the voice both in the national news media and our medical literature and forms like podcasts 
podcasts like we're doing here to really get the word out to our communities of color. You know, back um, like three or four weeks ago, Idris Elba had to be the one to go on his Instagram live to tell black people that coronavirus is possible for us to have. And it should not be that. It should be us who are at the forefront of those conversations. So I think getting the message out. I think we need to support our um, health system leaders and advocate to really encourage the the three T's, as one of my colleagues puts it, which is um, testing, tracing, and treatment. Um, there needs to be universal testing. We right now have about 1% of Americans, 3 million out of the 300 million in the country have been tested for COVID-19. And that's a problem, not just for the country, but in particular for the minority communities that are disproportionately suffering. Um, talk about tracing. So right now the big move is to go towards contact tracing. So who are you exposed to over the last 14 days? Let's go to them and talk about their symptoms and, and again, et cetera, et cetera. And if we're going to do that, people are going to be concerned about privacy, about trust, about security, and we need to make sure that the right people are helping support that initiative. Um, and lastly, really helping um, support our colleagues and making sure that treatment is equitable. And a lot of us are kind of touting that conversation right now, making sure that whether it's thought, thinking about rationing of ventilators, that equity is at the forefront of that conversation, whether it's thinking about um, the future coronavirus vaccines or future like um, compassionate care treatments, making sure again that each and every one um, of our colleagues, family members, friends who is of a racial ethnic minority group has access to those treatments that unfortunately, again, history has shown that we tend to not have access to. And I think there's an additional challenge in the midst of this pandemic in that we're not allowing family members into the hospitals or emergency rooms with their loved ones at this point in time. And so I think it's even more important that, you know, those of us on the front lines, those of us still working, take that extra step to truly be advocates for our patients and really ask, right, is there something else I can be doing to help? you know, and taking that extra time to just call that family member and give them that update, you know, because even if the outcome is going to be poor, if they can appreciate that the care given along the way was optimal, right, that kind of changes the dynamics, even in the poorest of outcomes. So I think that's another huge one. Without us at the bedside to advocate, you know, we've got to step in and fill the gaps. Yeah, no, that's exactly right. And I think I appreciate your practical tips as well, because that's that's what's happening in real life. The New York Times two days ago published an article about the lost in translation. It was the title and how um, right now in Mass General Hospital, where I did residency, almost 40 percent of the patients with COVID-19 are Spanish speaking. And we know that five and a half percent of um, physicians in the U.S. are Hispanic. Like we know that there are not enough doctors out there to speak to the true issues that these patients who are scared, who are alone, like you mentioned, have as related to this disease. And if we don't think about people actually taking that extra time, um, unfortunately, people are going to be in a tough space. So that's a great point. And I think I hold that one a little 
more dear to my heart because, you know, I lost my grandmother four weeks ago in New York. And the very last time I was ever able to speak to her when she was able to speak was when the doctor who was rounding on her used her personal cell phone to return our call and put my grandmother on speaker so that we could explain to her that we weren't there at the hospital with her simply because of the virus and the restrictions that had been put in place. That's the last time I ever got to speak to her. I saw her once after, but at that time she couldn't speak anymore. So I think from the patient perspective, I usually think of this as a doctor, but from the patient perspective, I have a little more appreciation for us kind of really stepping in the shoes there and going that extra mile for the families who need us most, you know? Yeah. I'm sorry to hear that. And that's such a, a touching story. And I think your experience is probably not unique to many of our colleagues who are not just thinking about their family members or the last patient that they saw, but also thinking about themselves. Like we are also at risk of this infection. Back in just a couple of weeks ago, we were still begging for um, personal protective equipment to be able to go and to be safely go onto the front lines to make sure we can hold the hands of the patients who are at, um, at who are in need. And so I'm, I'm sure that rings true for a lot of listeners too. But that actually brings me into our next point that I wanted to touch on. So bringing it back to us as millennials, you know, early in this disease course, there was a lot of oh, younger people are okay, you know, it's elderly and comorbid conditions. And, and I think we're seeing a lot of cases that are proving uh, to not be the case. We're all at risk at this point, you know? And so we had issues with kind of younger people taking this seriously and really staying home, especially before some of the social distancing guidelines really, you know, were handed down to us. But I think we're in a different place now. You know, we had a nice conversation with uh, Dr. Jasmine Marcellin, who's infectious disease out of Nebraska. And so we were addressing this on the front end of the pandemic. But now that we're in the midst, I think with millennials, we're facing another issue. So now we've been home. Many of us have been home for quite some time, right? We have to think we're not necessarily the demographic that has savings lined up to continue to support ourselves throughout the midst of all of this, right? We're in that career building phase. We're pursuing educational endeavors that are now on hold or have been changed significantly, right? So what are some points that you'd like to highlight for, especially us as millennials in the midst of this crisis where we currently stand today? Yeah, that's a great question. And Dr. Marcellin is amazing. She's a fellow Hamilton fan and Stan probably. So I'll like drop some Hamilton quotes along the way. But I think that's a really important point, right? Like, like you mentioned, there's a lot of us who have not are not used to this life. We're used to being on the go, whether it's brunch on Sundays, traveling on the whenever we get our, our latest vacation. I remember it wasn't until residency where I realized like, oh, exactly, exactly. <laughs> I realized, wow, all of my friends are going abroad during residency. Like I'm not doing this job right. But I think the really the first thing is to stay aware that this disease does kill. Just yesterday, we saw that there was another 25,000 cases and another 2,000 deaths from COVID-19. And as you mentioned, that range of 
um, age is from as young as in their 20s all the way through to, to 80s, 90-year-olds. And the 20-year-olds, everyone asks, well, what were their chronic conditions? What did they have? What was their problem, so to speak? Almost trying to pretend like, well, it can't affect me. But again, we hear story after story, whether anecdotally or through the early research data to see that young people, um, whether they're healthy or not, young women who are pregnant are coming in with asymptomatic infections as well. And there are really a lot of people who are at risk. And so staying, again, ready and aware of just of how risky this disease is and scary it is and how it can come on all of a sudden. We hear about, you know, make sure you're social distancing for, you know, for 14 days or self-quarantining, depending on who you've been in contact with. But in a matter of days, your life can change. You can end up sitting at home with a little tickle in your throat, a little cough, and all of a sudden the next day be in the ICU, as you mentioned, to cut off from your family, not able to speak to them because you have a breathing tube down your throat and having a very different life. And the realization is being in the ICU isn't just like a Grey's Anatomy moment where they just pull the tube and you're back to normal. Being in the ICU involves your kidneys all of a sudden not acting normally. And we have to have doctors considering whether you need to be placed on dialysis for some time and your liver function not being appropriate. And there's... um, recent data to show that the effect on the cardiovascular system is really significant. So these are things that, yes, can start off kind of, you know, if you're starting off younger and healthier in a good place, you may not experience, but things that we all need to be thinking about and staying aware of. So again, I think I would advise everyone to stay ready, whether it's washing of hands is constantly as you can, the six feet social distancing. We're all fortunately living in a country where we still can go for a run and we can go for a walk our dog, get in the park and as best as you can wear the mask when you're outside. Um, Really do your part to make sure that we can keep our fellow citizens, our fellow um, um, healthcare professionals as healthy as they can. Um, That would be the first big tip for me. What about another big tip as we're closing out the segment? Another big tip you want to share with our viewers tonight? Yeah, I think the biggest other big one would be to quote unquote, stay woke. I'm going to try and hit my my (laughs) urban uh, listeners. Um, You know, the opportunity that we have as millennials is to use our voices. People listen to us. People want to hear from the young um, trainee who's a medical student who now is not able to work on the floors because they um, are not wanting to expose themselves to COVID-19. So what can they do? How does the, you know, former law student who's now been, you know, furloughed from classes going to respond to this. And I would just continue to say to use your voices, get out on your social media platform of choice, get out and write those essays and those thought pieces and op-eds and really advocate for the people who are less fortunate than we are. If you are thinking about your avocado toasts and um, vacations like I still am right now, that means you may be in a position of privilege. Um, And if you're not, definitely use your voice as well. There are so few stories from people who are um, from more um, um, difficult situations that we're hearing. We're hearing a lot about the celebrity who got COVID in Australia on vacation, but we're not hearing about the mother of two who's trying to homeschool, trying to work her essential job as the bus driver, et cetera. Um, So I, I would think on both ends, sharing as many stories as we can to get through this together. I 
love that. I absolutely love that. Another major one, you know, Instagram Live is all the rave now. I mean, this Teddy Riley and uh, Babyface had like over 500,000 live viewers, right? So Instagram Live is another way to, to kind of just get out there and get like a quick story that you want to share with friends, with family, you know, and even good things too, because I think this is also taking a mental toll on a lot of people. So if you have a story that brings a ray of hope, that's also another really good thing to share too. Well, Dr. Essien, thank you so much for joining us on the Millennial Health Podcast. <laughs> this was amazing. Thanks so much, Jayshree, for having me. And thank you for bringing the word out in your own very special and important way. Thank you. So thank you, everyone, for joining us today. I hope this information was beneficial to you. If it was, please subscribe to the Millennial Health Podcast and share with your friends and family. If you have questions or comments, feel free to reach out to me on Instagram at Millennial Health Doc now, actually. So Millennial Health Doc. You know, I dabble on Twitter. I dabble a little bit on Facebook or really Instagram's where I'm at. All right. So thank you guys until next week. Bye.